Continuing our verse by verse look through uh, this gospel, the story, the message of Jesus Christ that's been passed down to us from generation to generation, from the direct eyewitness account of Peter to John Mark and now to us as well. We're going to be working through verses 1 through 21 today. As we cover a familiar but different story as well as warning from Christ and some very evident truths that we need to hold dearly on to. Before that, though, let us join together in prayer as we open up God's Word. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this past week, God. Um, the fact that we can hear this prayer, that we can participate in it is, is a blessing and an honor, God, that, that you brought us to this point. That our health is where it is to where we can stand here, sit here before you, God. Where we have the ability to even open up your word. The, the blessing and the privilege it is to even have a copy of your holy word, God. We take so many things for granted. God, the fact that we can worship freely uh, without fear of incarceration or death or any of the worldly abuses that can be put upon us, any of the persecutions that can come. God, we are free to worship you. God, what a blessing and an honor and a privilege. God, let us not take for granted the, the, the privilege that we have to gather together to read your word, that you've provided all of this for us. God, let us not take it for granted the time that we have right now Move the distractions away from our hearts. Soften them. Clear our minds. If it's worries and woes, God, let us just put them aside. Let us trust in you for this little amount of time. God, if it's stresses and burdens, please just relieve those things from us so that we may hear, we may understand, we may, may know more about who you are, about what you've done for us, and we can just live in those promises and in the work that you've already done. Father God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the truths held within it. Help me to communicate that well through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help each of us to hear and understand. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and that we worship. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. Now remember, many people, uh, many critics of the scriptures, they come in and say, well, why would you have two stories about Christ doing the same miracle. Well, we have numerous stories about Christ uh, healing, and innumerable stories about Christ casting out demons, and yet, again, a lot of people try to compare and contrast and say, well, these are the same event, but no, they're not the same event. This feeding of 4,000 and the previous feeding of 5,000, like we started in chapter 6. But they are different, because it's two different groups of people that are speaking to, two different numbers of those groups, and really two different things that he is stating and proving through them. But some of the things are true with both accounts, and we'll mention those. 
But for the most part, these are two separate accounts recorded in a majority of the Gospels by eyewitness testimony, and this is what Christ has done. He called the disciples and said to them, verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. See, in the last account when he fed the 5,000, they had only been with him for a day. He had been speaking and preaching to them for a day, and at the end of it, they were exhausted, they were hungry, he was exhausted, and he fed them out of the compassion for them. And again, he has compassion upon these people, on this crowd, and they had been with him for three days, and they had nothing to eat. So, verse 3, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come along distance. So his disciples, they answered him. He says, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? Fellas. Boys, and they're going to question again later, and it's so easy for us to kind of be hard on his disciples. Did you not just a short time ago see him feed even a greater number than these people from nothing? from the five loaves and the fish that were brought before him. And yet again, they questioned, you know, there's nothing around here. At least they didn't bring money into this discussion. There's nothing around here. How are we going to feed these people? Last time, the crowd was predominantly Jewish. They were on their way to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. They had merged upon him when they heard that he was going to be in the area, and they had swarmed him, and Jesus had compassion on them, so he taught all the Jewish people, and he preached to them, and then he fed them miraculously that evening. But here, in a Gentile land, surrounded by Gentiles, it's a very different crowd. See, even last week we heard Jesus call a woman a dog when he was explaining to her and challenging her with, didn't I come for God's people first, for the Jewish people first? And she says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so he teaches that truth that Jesus reveals to her that he has come for all people. He said, because of this reply, you may go. He healed the woman's child. It was her faith in the midst of everything. And so we see, again, Jesus goes on and he begins to heal people all throughout this Gentile land. We saw him heal a Gentile man earlier on when he cast the demons out of him, the legion. And so we see God's, God's plan for all of us for everyone being unveiled yet again. So they say, where can we get enough bread? And he says to them again, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they said. And he commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground, which is a miracle in itself to get that many people to do what you ask. And taking seven loaves, not five like last time, but seven this time, he gave, he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they serve them to the crowd. Something that we took last time from the story and that we have to hold on to again, first of all, is that Christ came and he has compassion upon not just the spiritual needs of people, but the physical needs of them as well. When he had compassion upon the crowd, the first thing that he did with the 5,000 was teach them the word. And then he fed them. He met their spiritual needs, their most dire, eternal needs first. And then he comes in and gives them the things that they need right here and right now. We just need to be fed. And he does that yet again. He teaches them. They've been with him for three days. And now he has compassion on them. And he feeds them. He 
takes these seven loaves and he breaks them. He gives them to the disciples first and they spread it out to all the people. Remember last time we talked about how Christ is as he will claim to be. He is the bread of life. He is what will fill us forever. He is what meets our greatest needs, our greatest desires. He comes in and he makes us whole. And we get to see that in a whole new light here in this story. Because he comes in and just as his body was broken for us, just as later on at the, uh, um, before his crucifixion and his last meal with his, with his disciples, he's going to tell them, like, this bread, this is my body broken for you. And that is a blessing for all of us, just as it is here. He blesses the bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples. And just like he does with his story, with his message, with his life, with his gospel, he gives it to the disciples, and then they carry it out to the rest of the people. That is how his gospel has been spread, that's how his church has been built, and that's how he even goes about feeding the people. See, we get to see a complete and a more total work now in hindsight than what he was revealing to them here. All of this comes together. All of this fits together like a jigsaw puzzle or, or a, uh, what do you call it? What's one of those, what are those, uh, what's that famous artist who has all the puzzles of his <coughs> paintings? Huh? Thomas Kincaid. Thomas Kincaid. We have a lot of those in our house. But he puts them together and it's beautiful and it's perfect and it's whole. And that's what we see even here. So they set them before the people. They served them to the crowd. And they also had a few fish, which this actual translation, uh, this translation literally means they had some sardines. The word that they use here for fish. The other fish with the 5,000, that was a more general small fish. This is literally sardines. So if you don't like them, that's unbiblical. Okay? That's what Christ would feed you if he was in front of you. And so I don't want to hear any more flack that I like them in mustard. Amen. So after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. And so they ate and they were satisfied. The people were satisfied, all these thousands, out of five loaves, or sorry, seven loaves here and a few fish. <coughs> then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. Seven large baskets. Last time it was 12. This time it was seven. Language-wise, there's a few differences between them. Last time, the baskets, the language for that means they were kind of small, small baskets. Twelve small baskets. Still awesome that he had that many leftovers. That spoke to being able to provide for the twelve disciples. That spoke to the number twelve itself, the twelve tribes of Judah, God's people. That spoke to him meeting their needs. That spoke to twelve as the uh, representation of God's power and authority and presence, which we've seen over and over throughout Scripture. So over and over again, 12 spoke, small baskets, 12 for one for each disciple, one for each tribe of Judah, one for all the Jewish people, which was who made up the crowd that Christ was saying, I'm going to be able to meet your needs, everything. And then here, seven large baskets, they're different, it's much larger, it's much greater, these could be huge baskets. And why that's so important? Because so about 4,000 were there, and he dismissed them, and immediately they got into the boat, and his disciples went to the district and moved on. Seven is a symbol throughout Scripture of completeness, of a whole. Creation, all of creation was put together within seven days. All of creation, all the heavens, all the earth, all the animals, all of everything. So here this is representing all of God's work, all of God's creation all of humanity in and of itself. 
Christ has come, and he's not just coming to meet the needs of the Jewish people, of his first people, but he is now going to graft us into the vine. He's going to bring to completion all of humanity under his umbrella, under his authority, under the forgiving grace that he's going to shed upon the cross. And so this is not just his compassion for the Jewish people. This is not just representing his compassion for those 4,000. This is representing his compassion for all of humanity. That he's going to break bread, literally have his body broken and given out for all of humanity so that they may be satisfied. And so we can't just blow through this as just a repeat or a downplay version of the feeding of the 5,000. It has so much more significant meaning because we are a part of that greater picture. We are part of that seven representation. We are the Gentiles. We have been grafted in, and he has forgiven us. Now, it's interesting, and it's perfect the way that Scripture has this right next to what Jesus is going to teach about in verses 11 through 21. Because according to the teachings and the laws of the Pharisees, and them, it was grace, mercy, God. He was only for the Jewish people. He was only for those that obeyed their laws and obeyed their traditions and obeyed their rituals and obeyed all of these things. That is who God was for. Not these Gentiles. Not these pagan worshipers. Not these people outside of the 12 tribes. But we're going to see Jesus reveal yet again, just as he has been ever since he healed the Gentile with legion, to this Gentile mother's faith, to everyone else he's been healing. He is opening up the kingdom for all of mankind because we're all God's children. And so it says this, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Classic, classic Pharisees. Demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. This is an important note. Because haven't they seen over and over and over and over again, Jesus worked miracles. Jesus provides signs. Maybe not at this last feeding of the thousands, but at the previous one, the Gentiles and the Pharisees, they were there. Or sorry, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were there. They saw him feed the multitudes. They've seen him heal. They've seen him do all these things. Even later on, they're going to see him raise Lazarus from the dead over and over and over again. They have shown him, and they recognize his power. They recognize his power. But who do they claim that that power comes from? Well, earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that they claim that his power came from Satan. He does these works by Satan. So they recognize his power, but they don't recognize where it comes from. Why? Why are they so against him? Why are they so rebellious? Why are they pushing back against everything that he is showing them? Why are they now demanding a sign from heaven? This is literally something that would come from the sky, a symbol, a sign. It's because they didn't. We'll break that down. What this does is this causes Jesus, this is one of my favorite verses now. He sighed deeply in his spirit. Does this mean Jesus was frustrated? Potentially. Does this mean he was disappointed? I, would, I wouldn't say so. But it's just, their hearts were so hard. They were so opposed. They were so blind that they could not see the truth. They couldn't see the truth. And 
sighing deeply in his spirit. He says, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign will be given to this generation. Now, in Matthew 16, where it also records this, it, it, it refers to no sign will be given to this generation except one like was given to, um, except the one that was given like Jonah. Let me read it. Except a sign of Jonah. Except a sign of Jonah. Well, what, is, what does that mean? First of all, it's ridiculous that any of these things that he had been doing, the feeding, the healing, literally raising up from the dead, which is what inevitably causes the Pharisees and the Sadducees to then plot to murder him. If you go and you read in John chapter 11, when after that occurs, that is when they decide, no, we've got to kill him. We have to put Christ to death. Because they saw Lazarus come out of the grave days after he had gone into it. So what does it mean that it's going to be a sign like the sign of Jonah? Well, Jesus was very different than Jonah. Similar in some ways, but different. And so similarities in which Jesus is referring to. First of all, it gives credence to the legitimacy that what occurred in Jonah actually occurred. This isn't some fable. This isn't some story. This isn't some literary thing that they use to teach a message, some metaphor. No, this actually happened. And it happened in a way where Jonah, who was rebellious, who tried to do anything but what God was asking him to do, he was called to go to Nineveh. He was called to take the message of repentance to these wicked and evil people. Were wicked and evil people. They stacked heads on spikes. They um, flayed people from their flesh. They were murderous and adulterous, and they loved all the things of this world, and they did it very, very well. They were very good at being evil. There was a whole nation of them. God sends Jonah to take to them a message of repentance, or you'll be destroyed. Turn to me, turn from your ways, or you will be destroyed. And Jonah's like, no, they don't deserve that. They don't deserve an opportunity to be saved. They don't deserve the opportunity to be forgiven. And so Jonah literally goes down, tries to go down to Tarsus, tries to go the exact opposite direction as God was trying to send him towards Nineveh. He goes, he gets in the boat, God rocks the boat, he jumps out of the boat, because again, he'd rather die than go do what God has told him to do. And he gets into the belly of the beast for three days. For three days, he is in there, and then when he comes out, he's like, okay, God, I'll do what you want me to do. And he delivers that message to the people, and they all repent, and they all turn away, and they're all forgiven, even though they do not deserve it. And he sits up on a hill, and him and God have a conversation, basically. And God continued to try to teach Jonah a lesson to get his heart in line with him so that he would care and forgive about these people the way that God does. But Jonah is just mad that they would have mercy, mad that they would have grace. And that's very different. So why, how is that the same sign as what we're going to receive, as what this generation, this generation? This is one of those things where, in context, we cannot apply this thing about this generation demanding a sign to ourselves. We can't. This is for these people at this time. They demanded a sign. They're not going to be given one. Except for this one of Jonah. And in that, what we see is these people who deserved none of it. They were wicked. They were evil. They were worldly. And they were lost. They were brought a message of repentance from one who 
was gone for three days, who went under for three days and who came back up. This is Jesus' first time kind of predicting his own death, even though it's going to be coming up again soon. Um, talking about his death, burial, resurrection. Talking about his message of repentance, which we've seen over and over again throughout this gospel. This is the sign that they're going to be given. It's not the one up in the sky that they've been looking for. It's not some miraculous spelling out of the stars that's like, listen to Jesus. No. It's through what Christ is going to do, through his work, through his testimony, his gospel, and through his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the sign that they're going to be given. This is the sign that they're going to be given, and yet they're still going to reject it. Jesus talks about this in one other place. In Luke chapter uh, 16, Jesus is given a parable, uh, given a, a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Uh, one of them ends up in hell, one of them ends up in heaven. And the one who's in hell, he's saying, you know, like, Lazarus, like, how can I, why didn't I, why am I over here suffering, why are you over there? And inevitably what it leads to is, like, he told him, if they don't listen to both, you didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, you will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You will not be persuaded. And so we see that this generation, these, these Jewish people, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, it talks about it in John in the first chapter, how he came into his own people and yet his own people did not recognize him. This is everything that he did was meeting the requirements, the needs, the prophecies that were talked about in Isaiah, in um, Psalms, in all these different places throughout the Old Testament. Everything throughout the Old Testament points towards the coming of Jesus Christ. And they studied it, and they read it, and they listened to it, and yet they could not see. They were blind to it. Because their hearts had been hardened. They'd allowed these false laws, these traditions, these rituals to come into their worship of God, get in between the legitimacy of their worship of God and of what he would have them do. And this is the state of God's people, the Jewish people, when Christ came back, when Christ came to earth. Sighing deeply in the spirit, he says, why does this generation demand a sign? They will have no sign except for the one like Jonah. And then he left them. He got back into the boat and he went to the other side. He didn't argue, he didn't go after them. This is who they are. Their hearts are hardened to this place. And so he gets in the boat. Now, while in the boat, we're going to see him talk to his disciples about this and, and teach them a lesson from it. But they're a little distracted. Okay? The disciples, they had forgotten to take bread out of these seven huge baskets that were left. They forgot to take bread and only had one loaf with them in the boat. And so then he gave them strict orders. He starts beginning to teach them something spiritual, something important, something they need to know. You need to understand this. Strict orders. He gave them strict orders. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out for these things. What is that? The leaven of the Pharisees is their hypocrisy. That's revealed in some of the other scripture. It is their hypocrisy. It is their teachings. It is their unbelief. Beware of this unbelief slipping into your life. Beware of this little bit because it can spoil the whole batch, this leaven, this yeast. Beware of it coming in and causing you to doubt and causing you to fall away. 
And beware of the leaven of Herod. Two distinct things here. The leaven of Herod, what were the fruits of Herod? Herod was uh, one who abused his power. He lusted after the flesh. He was always involved in the things of self and his desires. He was essentially representing the leaven of Herod as allowing the world to rule you. A love for the world, a love for the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, the sins that come from your heart. And so do not allow, watch out, beware of this doubt, this hypocrisy, and beware of a love for the world. And they were discussing amongst themselves, even after Jesus said this, that they did not have any bread. This is complete, this is going over them. They had forgotten the bread, and then it inserts like, Jesus is now giving them these strict warnings, watch out, like this doubt, this hypocrisy, it'll kill you, like this love of the world, it'll tear you apart. But they were discussing amongst themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why, why, why? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand? Don't you comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes not to see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, I told you. Okay, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, I told him. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? They were so caught up and they were so focused on what their needs were right in front of them, on what their desires were, on what, on what, they, what they wanted from God, that they had forgotten all that God, all that Jesus had ever done for them. They had forgotten and been distracted and pulled away from what Jesus was trying to teach them, which was so much more important than what they were worrying about right then and right there. This is us. Man, it's so easy for us to be hard on the disciples. It's so easy because we're like, boys, come on. He just fed five. He just fed 4,000 from nowhere. He had a few loaves. You have one loaf. You don't think he can feed 13 of you? You have one loaf and you don't think he can do that? He just fed thousands. And even before that, he fed tens of thousands potentially. And you're worried because you don't have any bread. What are you doing? He's trying to feed them something so much greater. So much greater. He's trying to feed them these things that would hold them and carry them through the rest of their lives because they need to know this. They need to know this. Peter and all of them who are going to go up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are going to stand in the courts of the Romans who are going to be put on trial for their beliefs, who a majority of them, all of them, are going to be put to death for their faith. They are being prepared and they are being discipled and they are being taught by Christ what they need to know so that they can carry out the mission he's going to give them, the Great Commission, and that they are going to be able to plant the seeds of the church that we still exist as a part of today. And they're worried about lunch. Man, is that us. What time is it? <laughs> We get so caught up on the things that God, we get so caught up on the, our desires right in front of us, that next thing, that next meal, that next paycheck, 
that we forget about how good and how faithful God has been for us in the past to this point. We start thinking about what we want from God next, and we don't remember all the things that God has already done for us. Prone to wander, Lord, prone to leave the God I love. One of the best lines in any song. This is who we are as a people. This is the same as we were when uh, God's people, as it recounts all throughout the Old Testament, as they would be hot and they would wander, as they would uh, dedicate themselves to God and then they would fall away, as they would assert that they were going to rebuild the temple and then they would fail and they were going to redo this and then they fail. Over and over again. God, if we take anything from us, first of all, it would be to maybe take a few moments to recognize all that God has done for you in your life. As I even said about in our prayer earlier, the fact that you are here, that you have a copy of this, that you have clothes on your back, that you got it here in a vehicle, the, the fact that no matter the quality of my friends, I have friends, no matter the quality of my clothes, I have clothes, uh, no matter the quality of the food, I'm being fed, I'm not starving right now, no matter the quality, I have a spouse, I have children, I have been blessed innumerously by God, all these things that only he can give the breath of my lungs, the beat of my heart, my health, these things that can be here and gone in an instant. I am being kept by God. Now he promises us, promises us continually throughout scripture, whether on the Sermon on the Mount or even before and after, that he is going to care for the things that we need in this world. He's going to. The clothes on our backs, our, our food, our shelter, like God is going to provide those things. Now, it may not always be what you want. It may not always be your desire. It may not always meet the level of, of greed or envy or keeping up with the Joneses that you have built up in your heart or the expectations you have. But you are not going to be left by God. You will never be forsaken. You will never be abandoned by him. He promises that. And yet we live always seeking what can he do for me now? What can he do for me next? And we forget all that he has done to bring us here. For some of you, 80, 90 years of life, 60, 70, 30, it doesn't matter. Just the fact of how he has brought us to where we are now. And where we are now, he is trying to teach us things that are eternal, that are necessary, that are so vital, so important that he warns us sternly because he's worried about the conditions of our hearts talked about over and over again. Christ wants our heart. God wants our heart. And when he has it, he will make it new. He will bring it. He will conform it to his will and to his image. So I guess what we need to pray for here is that we wouldn't be so caught up, so distracted. Um, Matthew says at the end of this retelling, it says, then, then, the disciples understood. Then they heard what Jesus was saying, that they needed to avoid the teachings, uh, the man-made teachings and traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They needed to separate themselves from that. He was giving them something new. It's the truth. And so what we take from all of this 
is that if our desires is always for what's next, we're never going to see what God already has for us. If our hearts are so hard, if we're so blind to who Jesus is, even if we've seen him done these amazing things, even if we've seen him feed people, make them new, bring them from darkness to life, from addiction to freedom to all these different ways, if we're so busy and so caught up that we can't see that or if we're so blind to it, going to cause him great distress. What we're beginning to see, what's going to be affirmed and taught to us over and over again, so far up to this point in the gospel of Mark, we have seen repeatedly that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no question, there is no doubt. He's the one who calms the winds and the waves. He's the one that has control over everything that is spiritual, all these forces. He's the one that has control over everything that is physical within creation. He can heal. He can make the the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. He has complete and total power, complete and total authority and control. And he has chosen to come, chosen to reveal himself, chosen to teach, preach, and chosen to die in order for us to know him more completely and more fully without sin separating us anymore. And so what we're beginning to see now, after we've gotten that, we know who Christ is, is we're going to be now taught how Jesus is everything. He is everything. He has everything, and he can provide everything for us. And because of that, he is worthy. Now, a lot of times in Psalms, or in prayers, or in scripture, we kind of blow through the fact that when it says that Jesus is worthy of our worship, Jesus is worthy of our everything. That's a, that's a nice, easy cliche to say. Like, Jesus, yes, you are worthy of everything. But when you start putting that into practical application, are you living a life that matches your words, or are you living in the hypocrisy like the Pharisees were? Because if you say that Jesus is worthy, that means he is worthy of what? Your time, what he's called from you, the minimal things, attending church, studying his word, spending time with him in prayer, bare minimum. If you say he's worthy, but you don't even give him that scrap, that peace, do you believe what you're saying? If you say he's worthy and yet you see everything that you have, your health, your finances, your family, if you see those things as yours, when scripture so clearly makes it out that those are his, do you truly believe that he is worthy? Because if you say that he is worthy, that means he is worthy of everything. That is everything of yours, everything of yourself, everything of your life, that because of him, he is worthy, and I will keep myself sexually pure healthy, spiritually in tune with him, that he is worthy of giving up my desires, my wants, what I perceive as my needs in order to pursue him, that he is worthy. And again, that worthiness comes based on the authority that he has power over everything, based on the promises that he is going to meet all of our deepest needs, all of the things that are 
bodies and our minds and our hearts and our spirits truly desire. Not the sinful things of this world, but the things that we actually need to fulfill us. The things that actually feed us and bring us life. He has promised us all of those things. And so if we say he is worthy, that means he is worthy of giving up everything for. Whatever that is, my bad habits, that bad music, those bad shows, whatever. Of, of, of humbling myself before my family, of serving them. Why? Because Christ served me first. This is what he calls me to do. Of humbling myself before my wants and my desires, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, where I'm going in my life, my goals, my future. He is worthy of dropping those and seeking his will above all. Because without him, I'll have no eternity. Without him, I'll have no life. My wife, my children, my health, these are blessings directly from God. The, the, the burden and the privilege and the purpose to be up here doesn't make me more special. We're on the same level at the foot of the cross. And he's calling all of us to a level of holiness. He's calling all of us to give up and sacrifice because he has done so first. He has walked in your shoes. He has felt the temptations of this world even greater than you have because Satan stood with him upon a mountaintop and said, listen, you can have all of this. If you would worship me, Satan says, if you worship me, I will give you everything that you desire. I will give you all the things of this world. And that's something I'll never be posed with. That's something you will never be challenged with either. And even at the greatest place of temptation, Jesus rebuked him and relied on the Father. And that is why he is worthy to be called King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's why even though he came down to this earth, like it talks about Philippians, and he humbled himself as a servant, that's why every name, every, his name will be above every name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's because he is worthy. Is your heart hardened? Are you blinding yourself to the truth of who Jesus is, of what he's done, so you can continue having what you desire? So that you will continue on in your doubt or in your hypocrisy. So that you can continue on in the leaven of Herod and the love of the world around you. Are we distracted by our immediate needs and not seeing what God has given us over and over and over again? Is this where we are today? Terry Please stand now as we worship together one more time. If you have a burden on your heart, if you have a need for prayer, please now this altar is open to you. Come, let us join, let us worship, let us sing. Jesus paid it all. Lord.